Hey there, and welcome to Town Hall, the podcast for service-based businesses hosted by Schedulicity. I'm Jamie. In today's episode, we were delighted to hear from Keith Smith, founder and CEO of Payouts Network, about all the ins and outs of credit card processing and the history and how it led us to the creation of Norm. Let's get to it. Good afternoon, everyone. My name is Michael Wilson. I am the Senior Vice President of Marketing here at Schedulicity, and you are tuned in to the Demystifying Credit Card Processing Town Hall. This is part of our ongoing financial freedom series where we try to provide you guys with as much information as possible to help you with the financial side of your business. So personally, I'm super stoked about this particular town hall because I'm as fascinated as I am confused by the black box of credit card processing. And in order to help us navigate this and provide some clarity and insight, um, we've invited a couple of experts, Keith Smith and Greg Rogers. Keith Smith has spent the last 20 years innovating uh, in the mobile banking and um, financial technology sector. He's created multiple super successful businesses that have been acquired by titans in the banking industry. He's currently the uh, CEO and founder of a company called the Payouts Network, which is a technology platform that's transforming how business entities and government entities are dispersing payments real time to customers, businesses, employees, and on-demand workers. Um, So we're very lucky to have Keith on this particular town hall. We're also joined by Greg Rogers. Greg has spent the majority of his career in the tech entrepreneurship world. Um, Greg created in the late 2000s, two different digital marketing platform companies that were acquired by AOL. He then moved to London to begin investing and advising tech startups through a fund called Techstars. Um, During that period of time, he actually invested in Schedulicity as well. He then joined the board of Schedulicity and uh, I can't remember exactly when it was. And then in 2018, we convinced Greg to move his beautiful family from London to Bozeman, Montana. Since then, he's been essential in the ideation, creation, and implementation of our own payment processing platform called Norm. And uh, we're going to move into that here uh, shortly about what Norm's all about. But I wanted to thank Greg for joining us as well. Before we dive into everything, I just wanted to let everybody know what this platform is going to be. We're going to probably spend the first 10 minutes going through the history of credit cards um, from the 30s up to present day. We're probably going to move after that into kind of the last 10 to 15 years of innovation in the space and how the space has moved forward. We're going to jump into some nuts and bolts of the credit card processing world so that you guys can understand exactly what you pay, why you pay it, and who actually gets the money from the, the fees that you pay. And then we're going to look at the future of this industry and how our own new innovative uh, payment platform is playing into that. So, uh, and then at the end of all that, we'll have a nice, robust Q&A for any other questions that you may have. So I'm also equipped here with my own uh, pieces of paraphernalia from credit card processing. And I'm going to start this with Keith. And I'm going to ask you to explain to me what this 
dog tag looking metal devices. So if you could help me. I, I have one as well. Yeah, I'm right on. <clears throat> so, you know, back in the, back in the thirties and, and the card that I actually have is from the late forties uh, was actually my mother's. And so it's a charge it plate. And so it's the beginning of, you know, the evolution of having a line of credit or, you know, you watch the old Westerns and you see people walk in and yeah, put it on my account. And, you know, it evolved to where, you know, instead of just going and signing, you needed to have some credentials and charge a plate was a company back in the forties uh, that came about and it was kind of city by city, uh, Michael. And so mine is from Roanoke and the one that you have is from some particular city. And it was either for a merchant or for a group of merchants uh, but it wasn't nearly ubiquitous, you know, like credit cards are today. But, you know, it was the first real form of payment, you know, outside of, of a dollar or coins, you know, pennies, nickels, quarters, that kind of stuff, um, you know, for transacting. And it, and it was, you know, kind of this pre-registered method of identifying you as the consumer that was authorized to make that purchase, right? So you started to see fraud show up and risk start to show up. And now, you know, how do we give people the ability to uh, identify themselves and, and transact in a, in a safe and meaningful way that was good for them and good for the merchant? So last time that we talked, we were talking here in the office, you were telling me, because the thing I didn't realize about all this is the bank's role in credit cards, right? I didn't realize that banks were behind all the credit cards. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. So, you know, it's as when you look at Visa MasterCard, I know we'll get further into this in, in the discussion later, but, you know, Visa MasterCard, everybody needs to remember they were they were created by the banks and owned by the banks. Right. So MasterCharge and Bank AmeriCard or whatever it was called back then was the group that every bank in the U.S., you were either a Visa bank or a MasterCard bank. So a, a Bank AmeriCard or a MasterCharge you know, bank. And then you had Sears who owned a bank and that became Discover, right? So you had the Sears card and Sears bank, right? So it's all been backed by the financial infrastructure, you know, here in the U.S. And it's really around issuing, you know, a line of credit and, you know, managing the risk associated with it and trying to get more subscribers, right? Which really is cardholders, <clears throat> more participation. But, you know, back then, that's why, again, when you look at the, you know, charge a plate, you know, this was, you know, a bank centric, you know, product that was when you finally started seeing banks come together with merchants and consumers. And, you know, so that's that's the evolution, you know, of kind of where it started. And uh, of course, where it is today is uh, far more complex. So the. So I was doing a little bit of reading about it, and I, and I noticed that the initial cards were really for business people, right? It was for, they call them T&E cards, travel and entertainment cards, right? Diners Club, American Express. Like, when did the big move towards consumers happen? Yeah, so you know what, what was interesting is, is <clears throat> when, when the American Express and diners, right, came about, it was really you know, there's a lot of spend, there's a lot of uh, money in these banks and these big corporate clients needed a way to control what you and I spent on the company's behalf. And, you know, we started to see that evolve 
and, and consumers really kind of came along at the same time. It was just the level of volume was not there, right? It was much smaller and you'd have a $500 line of credit. But these companies were like, I just need an open to buy and I really need a charge card, right? Kind of different, right? A, a T&E card a lot of times is a charge card where you have an account and you have tied to that and you're decrementing off of it and it turned into a credit card. But consumers really started with credit cards and then it evolved to debit cards, right? Which is guaranteed funds. But, you know, so, so you know, when they corporate corporate purchasing cards kind of took on, took off and it kind of trained consumers. And then that drove demand, you know, from a consumer perspective, I get this benefit in my corporate life. Why can't I have it in my personal life? And the bank sat there and said, well, if it's good for the businesses, how do we market this down to consumers? So you started to see that happen in the sixties, uh, best that I recall, you know, sixties, early seventies. And then I, I grabbed this oh, uh, yeah. fun stuff. So this whole, this life magazine ad about, Consumer credit cards taking off in the U.S. and you can see Bank of America card and Master Charge, and this, this is obviously from 1970. That's so right. this yeah. is essentially like the big. This is the big takeoff, That's point, right. right? That's right. And you were, you know, merchants were either back then you were either a Mastercard merchant or you were a Visa merchant or you were you know, today MasterCard and Visa, but you were MasterCharge or your Bank of America card or your Amex or you were diners, right? And so you didn't have a ubiquitous payment method or infrastructure really, right? You didn't have a terminal that could do all of it. You had a terminal that was either, you know, better yet a knuckle buster, right? And so, you know, you have the, yeah. So that is given to you by your bank back in the day and the bank was either a, a master charge member bank or bank americard member bank or you had american express and you had you know sears at the time then became discover you had those in diners club and they'd handle hand out their own knuckle busters right so you had you had that and then the verifone came along and created the zon jr and we started seeing, you know, mag magnetic stripes, right? But, you know, back in the 70s, it was, you know, member-owned being the bank, you know, member-owned association controlled by the banks. And so the more cards you had on file, the more control of the network you had, right? So if you were a really big issuer, you own more of the network. And if you were a really small community bank, you own less of the network. Right. And so that's how this thing started to stand up. And we went from knuckle busters to, you know, the terminals and we went from, you know, the charge of plates to, you know, mag stripe, you know. So, yes. So this is fascinating to me. Right. This is I got this off eBay. Um, this card expired in 1973. And this was apparently one of the first Bank of America cards that actually has the stripe. So what blows me away is we still have stripes and we're 50 years away from this. Yes. Like it's time. It's time to put the stripe away, isn't it? Well, and here's what's interesting, kind of where you're headed about getting rid of the strip and, and uh, or the stripe. And, you know, we go to the chip card, but, you know, that card right there, is it even, is it embossed? Can you feel the numbers on the front of it? Yes, it is. Yeah. 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 So that was back. You put in the knuckle buster, you put a, 
a five piece of a carbon piece of paper and they ran, ran it across and they wrote it in the dollar amount and you signed it. And then they gave you a copy and then a copy stayed with the merchant and then two copies of the old zipper bag with a lock and they drop it off at the bank. And then the bank would parse those out, break them apart. And that's how, that's how processing was happening manually. And they get entered into a system. And, you know, and so, you know, we evolved to, from, from that perspective to mag stripe, swiping the term, swiping the card and it all kind of happening automatically. And then you ended up on that mag stripe, that mag stripe, I'm going to bet is a single, a single stripe, right? And so there's only level one data on there. And a mag stripe today has three tracks, right? So it has your name, then another track has your address and another app you know, has more pertinent information, right? So the mag stripes are now more sophisticated um, and they still exist because of the technology and the way the platforms run here in the US. But, uh, you know, pretty fascinating how, you know, all these have kind of changed and that mag stripe got sliced into different pieces to hold different data parts to help manage risk and speed up processing and, you know, help the banks. So uh, when we were talking last week, you told me a story about when you were taking credit cards in the store and they would print out a book yes. every month. Yes. Could you tip, repeat that yes. story Listen, and then, and then we'll yeah. move on. I just yeah, back in that. the 80s. So you would take that that card that you have that you bought off of eBay and you'd go up and, and check the, you'd hand your card and, and Visa and MasterCard published out books every month. And they were books of cards that were no longer approved, right? You were, you were suspended, right? And so you'd flip through the book and you'd look for the card number. And as long as that, you know, the last four or eight digits on the card, you know, didn't show up in the book, then you could swipe it, you know, and, and go forward. And so they would publish these books. And as a, as a merchant, I was, I think in high school and, you know, working at a sporting goods store or something like that, but you'd have to go through those books and then, and then you'd have, you know, management had to throw away the old books when the new books came in. And if the management wasn't really, you know, on the ball, you could literally have four or five different versions of that book for three or four months worth. Right. And it was just this, you would get mailed and they'd be delivered by your bank. Right. So your bank would deliver these. And so, you know, your community bank would get a huge box of credit card, you know, approval books. They're really the declines. And that was when you were the knuckle busters, right? Because they had no way of authorizing electronically that your card was good to buy. Crazy. Okay, yeah. so now um, let's talk what's happened the last 10, 15 years, right? And, how, and, what, and what I'm really curious about is like why, what made the disruption kind of so easy and unexpected? You know, things that we saw, we saw was where, you know, dongles that go into to phone jacks why, why was that? So what did they do that was so different? You know, when, when I left corporate America, it was in the late or, you know, early two thousands. Right. And so, you know, you look at when I left, we went and started a company to do gift cards in the grocery stores and create dynamic valuing to where you, you could literally take a, a dead piece of plastic, run it through a terminal and load money on it. <clears throat> and we were just focused on using the existing infrastructure that was out there called credit card terminals and, you know, be able to put connections into these merchants 
and but take the friction out of people having to go store to store, merchant to merchant to buy a gift card and have to buy a $20 card, $50 card, $100 card, pre-denomination. And the old cards were live, right, at the time. And so they're treated as cash. And so we built the, the technology and the company to displace all of that. And so now you see, you know, the convenience, it's more secure, you have choice, you have, you know, special events, right, the branding has become, you know, it's a birthday, it's an anniversary, it's Valentine's Day, it's Christmas, it's Hanukkah, it's whatever it is, right? And so, you know, this whole personalization started happening in the, you know, early 2000s, and it was, you know, still plastic was the medium. And then, and I'm going to get to the dongle here in a second, right? And so, so then, you know, we, we got into mobile banking, right? And so mobile banking was around self-serve, right? Allowing consumers to take care of their banking needs when they couldn't be in front of a computer and they didn't have to go into the branch. And, you know, so when we built that company, you know, the, the banks were like, Hey, you know, this is great on one side because I don't have to have as many people in the branches on the other side of the bank. They're like, we got all this infrastructure and all these branches and we want to fill them up with people. But, you know, people who needed to make a deposit were standing in line in front of somebody who wanted to check their balance. Somebody who wanted to, you know, move money from one account to another account. So we, you know, saw the phone as the third screen and figured out how to build the technology to allow people to self-serve, you know, and, and do that kind of in this banked, but not really, the bank didn't really want to serve that customer, right? Because they didn't make money on you and me going in and checking a balance, right? Or looking up a check for us or, or you know, printing off our statement, you know, any of that kind of stuff. And so, you know, we saw this electronification of payments start touching multiple parts, gift cards is one, right? We saw terminals, we saw merchants now have a terminal that you could accept Visa and MasterCard, right? And you can remember in the 90s, you'd go up and look on the window to see if the little bug was on it so that they accepted your Visa card or, or MasterCard. And if you happen to be an Amex card holder, you really sat there and go, only place I can use this is at a restaurant and a hotel. Right. right. And you couldn't use it at retail. You couldn't use it at a hair salon. You couldn't use it, you know, all these different places. So you're looking for the bugs. But in 2000, you started to watch this become more ubiquitous. And the banks were doing a really good job of getting more people to take cards. They were issuing more lines of credit. They were getting more cards in the consumer's hands. And so we started to have a preference and merchants started to respond to go, gosh, if I want more customers and I want to make it I want to allow them to pay the, the way they want to pay, right? And cash was still king, right? It was still king back then. And, but you started watching those merchants do that. And you watched Walmart, you know, sit there and say, hey, I'm going to do, I'm going to, I'm going to go in lane, self-serve, swipe your own card. You know, you sign the, the screen, right. you know, everything's fine. So that whole, you know, self-serve model really started touching a lot. <clears throat> and then, you know, I, I think that, um, you know, you held up the dongle and, you know, when we built, um, before Square started, we also built um, mobile wallet technology. And so we built a company that built the backbone and the platform for the Google wallet. And wallets are, were great, a great idea. I would say today, they're nothing but neat, right? We still, as a, as a country or as a country and as a technology, have not figured out how to get meaningful content into our mobile wallet. So Google wallet, Apple wallet, you know, they're all kind of neat and you can wave and pay. But what's the real benefit 
right? What's the real benefit? And so because that didn't take off, I believe chip cards had an opportunity to come in, right? And now we have chip cards and especially with COVID, now you kind of, you know, dip your chip or, you know, wave it or whatever you're going to do to pay. Um, but you saw that kind of come back, right? Where people thought in, in the early 2000s, 2007 or so, that mobile wallets are going to be the greatest thing and everybody's going to have that. We're just going to have our phones and, you know, all that kind of stuff's going to happen. But then in the last 10 years, we have seen the chip card. And I think probably if anybody's had a card issued to them in the last, you know, five years, it's probably a chip card uh, and MagStripe. And so, you know, you watch that happen. And then in this, um, in the world of disruption and, and how does, you know, stuff happen that nobody sees coming, there's kind of two anomalies here. One is, uh, you know, the power of PayPal. And, you know, we had internet merchants and we had eBay and we had, you know, all this happening out there in the market that was now virtual, right? It was not a brick and mortar environment. And you saw these um, marketplaces start to evolve and the traditional bank and payment processors, merchants, acquirers did not want to serve. And so PayPal came in and found a way to get in there and even though today Visa and MasterCard are now publicly traded, they're not member owned anymore. Uh, they're still controlled by the banks, right? They're, they're, their whole key is we have to have more cards issued. And so PayPal comes in and says, I'm going to power these merchants. I'm going to power consumers to pay and I'm going to make it seamless and I'm going to make it easy for them. And we're going to do it all virtually and we can manage the risk, right? So, so all that happens and, and the virtual aspect, um, you know, takes off. And then we have a similar situation happen where we have Square, you know, come about, right? So, you know, people say, how did Square get to where Square is? Well, you know, I think to Square's credit, they clearly identified a market similar to PayPal that said, hey, this is underserved. It's, you know, there's a lot of small merchants out there who cannot get underwritten or approved for credit card processing because they're a single person hair salon, right? Or, you know, they they go to the flea market and sell their goods and stuff that they make during the week, they sell it on the weekends. And we've got consumers who are trained that I want to pay the way I want to pay. And if you don't accept, it creates friction. And so these small merchants wanted to be able to accept credit cards and they wanted to be able to expand their market, right? I want to sell more. And so how do I sell more? I get more people wanting to buy from me. And Square came in and said, hey, I'm going to do this in a way that not only I can manage the risk, but I'm also going to kind of blend everybody together. I'm going to create a rate that just kind of pools everyone. So, you know, Square has some merchants who are really low risk, but they pay a higher rate to offset the merchant that is really high risk, right? That needs a higher rate. And so they try to blend it all together. So, you know, the, the low cost, the low risk business is overpaying. The high risk business is being able to operate and facilitate off the back of the, off of the, you know, lower risk business. So, but Square did a great job of that. And they also figured out how to, well, so one is they, they made it easy for the merchant to get approved and, and to be able to accept. Second part is they didn't require the consumer to do anything different, right? Use the same cards that you have, pay the way that you've been paying. But then they also went back on behalf of the merchant and did a great thing too and said, hey, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to help you 
be able to use your phone as the terminal, right? And so I'm not going to require another piece of hardware. You can download an app. You can put a dongle, you know, into your phone and you can accept payments. And they started looking at Bluetooth technology and and doing all those things. So because they were in this distributed marketplace, my term, I don't know if that's really what it's called, but distributed marketplace where you don't know the infrastructure, you know, of every merchant, every nail salon, every hair salon, every, you know, you don't know that infrastructure. So you got to kind of come to the least common denominator, which is everybody's got a smartphone. And then you get to, you know, you've got a dongle. And so when you're able to do that, and I think that just kind of tees up the next set of innovation, right? I think the last 20 years in payments, 30 years has been phenomenal. The next 30 years is going to be even better, right? And so, you know, we are, we are looking for, you know, there's more disruption. I mean, we're disrupting, you know, in, in my company today in a big way, and we're creating Venmo for businesses. And you guys are creating great technology as well. And, you know, but that's how, that's how innovation happened, right? Is these banks kind of took their eye off the ball. They didn't want to understand how to manage the risk. They wanted to just serve those merchants that worthy of serving. It's kind of like today, if you want to go get a loan, they're going to, if you got a lot of money, they're going to give you a loan. If you don't have a lot of money, they don't want to, they don't want to lend, lend money to people who don't have money. Right. And so, so, so before we, before we, cause I, I want to move from this into the whole, you know, that, that Uber-like experience, it really started to change that dynamic between consumers and not quite service professionals, obviously, you know, taxis, it's a service, but not like the, the services that schedule listed service, right? Um, uh, I would love to, to dive real quickly into um, fees. Yeah. Why these numbers? Why the interchange? Who gets paid? Nobody seems to know. Like, how many people are taking a piece of that pie? And, and who ends up with what at the end of the day? Yep, so let me, let me try to keep this simple because it gets to be a tangled mess. You know, if we go, well, I'll go as deep as you want, but let me try to keep it relatively simple where people can digest this. And so if you, if you take the payment world, you have the payment networks, you have the banks, and a bank is an issuing bank, and it also is a sponsor bank, and I'll talk about that in a second. You have your merchant acquirer right? Your payment processor, right? So you got your networks, you got your banks, and you got your payment processors. Well, underneath there, a payment processor cannot do anything in the networks without a sponsor bank, right? So you've got banks who say, I'm going to sponsor people to process credit card payments like you guys do. So you got a sponsor bank. But if a credit card issuer also has to have a, sp- a sponsor bank as well, right? And to be sponsored. So when you network, say credit so- card issuer, you mean, let's say a consumer. No, no. So credit card issuer being a bank. <clears throat> so if you have um, here, the bank of Bozeman wants to issue a credit card and they have to have so much in assets in order to issue credit cards that they may have to go to a credit card sponsor bank in order to be sponsored into the network to have enough. They got to have enough capital to underwrite the risk that is on those credit cards. Right. So that's what, so credit card, you know, cap, credit card issuer could be cap one right? As kind of an independent non-bank and maybe they now have a bank, but, um, and you see all these other little, you know, co-branded bank, co-branded cards, but, you know, those are, they're sponsored based on the amount of capital or the amount of, uh, of risk that's out there that they got to be able to underwrite. They have to have enough capital to do that. So if you and I decided we wanted to go start issuing our own credit card, one, we'd have to have so many assets, so much asset cash 
based assets in our in our company. But then we'd also have to have a bank that underwrites us because we're going to issue more cards than you and I, you know, would have capital in our company to support. So, so for the people who are watching this and get and paying fees, how many? Like, give me yep. the because I'll be I get a little bit yep. lost in some of those so things. Take, how many people are taking a chunk of that transaction? So take a hundred dollar item, right? So you got a hundred dollar ticket, and so what what determines um, interchange, right? So first off, the type of merchant you are. So you get categorized, right? So you're a type of merchant. The second is the type of card that the consumer's paying with, right? Is the next factor. And so if you, and then the third factor is what is the dollar amount, right? Is it a hundred dollars? Is it $5,000? Is it $50,000? And then, um, and then the method in which the card was accepted, was the card present? Was the card not present? Was it phone? Was it the internet? Right? So that, that kind of what builds into interchange. So let's say now we've got a brick and mortar merchant. <clears throat> you go in get your haircut. It's $100. They swipe your card. That $100 will get assessed and we'll just roughly say 2%. Okay. So you got 2%. 2% is $2 on a $100 item. Of that, about a buck 50 goes to the issuing bank. Wow. Okay. Yeah. About a buck 50. The 75% goes to the bank. Yeah. A buck 50. Yeah. Buck 50 goes to the bank. 10 cents goes to the payment network. So if it was a Visa card, 10 cents goes to Visa. Okay. Right. Buck 50 goes to the issuer. The acquirer, the payment processor, will end up about um, 38 cents. Okay, roughly 40 cents, right, of that. And so that's how- Yeah, so that's how it gets broken out. So your card, credit card issuer is three times more revenue than, than the person who's processing the credit card, right? And then the network's getting their piece. So the 10 cents that the network's getting is just on that transaction. Now, the network is also getting fees from the issuer who got the buck 50. They're getting other fees on what they do, you know, day in and day out. But, um, you know, and so those are, those are the three big buckets. Network gets about 10 cents. The, the uh, uh, issuing bank gets about a buck 50. And the merchant acquirer gets say forty cents, and in there, yeah, there's two cents here and two cents there, and another eight cents that breaks down that cost for the for the uh, merchant acquirer, right? So they've got to pay a sponsor bank, they got processing cost, right? But you know, it's it vast the vast majority of it goes to you know the issuer, and so so, the, so okay. one, one quick question: card present, card not present fees, right? Normally, a big discrepancy. Right. Obviously, it has to do with fraud possibilities. Right? Right. Yeah. Is that what's been seen over the years? That's what's fraud and chargebacks. Chargebacks. Right. So, so fraud and chargebacks really are the are the big big part. So fraud and chargebacks, and then you know they also look at the the type of card it, as well. And so if if a particular card has a high default rate, they could even have a higher interchange rate or impact interchange you know, on that. Um, but also when you look at a, a card that has a premium rewards program, right? The more premium the rewards program, the more expensive it is for the merchant to accept it. 
Right, that's so not let's, say, let's say I've got American Express Delta card so that I, when I buy things, I can fly for free. That's what you're talking yeah. about, right? You're basically saying, I, because I'm getting rewards for Delta, when I go and you know, pay for my haircut, whether it's um, card not present or present, that's going to be a higher percentage to that merchant. That's right. Yeah, so somebody... Can- if somebody came in with a green Amex, and I haven't looked at Amex interchange rates lately, but if they came in with a green Amex, it's probably going to cost less than if they came in with a gold Amex or a platinum, and less than if you came in with your Delta, you know, frequent flyer, you know, American Express. But where it's probably seen the most inside your client base is when somebody comes in with a Chase credit card versus a Bank of Bozeman Visa credit card. Right, that Bank of Bozeman credit card is going to be the lowest cost, and that Chase, you know, um, preferred whatever their you know super super you know special card is is going to be more expensive. So, how does this show up on the people who are watching this? How does this show up on their bill? Do some people get? Because I've seen some people they have no clue what they're paying, right? And some bills seem so confusing. I, I'm not exactly sure how you even get to the bottom of what you're paying, right? Yeah. Total monthly. So what's that? What's what's the next step of that? Who's already doing that? Say, look, we're going to just take all those things in consideration, and it's just going to be one fee for everything, and we're going to simplify the process. Yeah. So so today it's kind of a um, it's up to the it's up to the merchant acquirer. Every everybody's payment processor. It's up to them as to how much they acquire. When you say merchant acquire, you're talking about in our case schedule listing. That's right. That's right. Yeah. So it's up to us to do that. Yeah, to the level of detail you know that you share, which is also um, controlled by the amount of data you get. right? Right. So depending on what you're getting, you know, from the networks is how much you can share with the merchants and how it's packaged, right? So today it's not very easy to understand, Michael, and and it's confusing. Um, and some people argue that it's intentional, you know, that it's confusing, and uh, it is super complex. So I don't have a clear answer to somebody to point somebody to a to go figure out what that looks like. But it is up to your individual acquirer, and I know you guys are working to simplify that, make it more transparent for your merchants you know, and, and take the guesswork out or the surprise, right, out of accepting credit cards. So, well, this might be where uh, I, I draw Greg in. And, you know, because obviously this is one of the things that we wanted to take out of this whole process, right? And the demystifying credit card processing for us was not just kind of a moniker for a town hall as much as it is, like what we want to do for everybody out there, right? Because I'm as confused as anybody, so I'd love to be able to understand it or at least know what I'm going to pay every month, right? And know yeah. what know how to read my own statements. Right. Yeah. So uh, one thing I would one thing I before Greg jumps in here, one thing I would just encourage everybody or caution everybody is that <clears throat> when when you see a card come in and you know and I've kind of now set the groundwork that when you see a premium card you're probably going to break out knives, right? But you know the, those premium cards have a higher spend. Those consumers spend more, right? So they may cost you a fraction of a penny more or a penny more, but those those cardholders spend more, right? And so, you know, it's not a bad thing, right? It just would help if people could see what the real cost is, you know, and what is the breakdown of my interchange. And so there is that, um, 
you know, data, you know, definitely helps. Knowledge is power, right? And so we're, we're data driven and, and being able to share that is super important. So we could teach our people which the pre- what, what premium cards are. Then we could, as soon as they see those cards, they could start upselling additional product at the time of checkout, right? I would. <laughs> hey, all right. I like it. Yeah. I like it. Greg? Hey, Michael. I'm just we're, pulling you in here. I just, just yeah, yeah, sure. I think this is the perfect time to talk about what we're trying to do here. Yeah. Well, fun. hey, everyone. I am uh, I'm Greg Rogers. Um, I am part of the Schedulicity team. And really, more in relation to you, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about Norm and kind of where, where payment process is going. I, I get the pleasure of not talking about the, the past, but rather where we think the, the ball is moving to. Um, in short, our view at Schedulicity is that payment processing is going to become really simple. Um, at least that's where we're taking the market. And really that's where the entire industry is moving to. So, you know, for example, when we talk about rates, um, you may have noticed that we just introduced a product called Norm, which I'll talk to you a little bit about, but we have introduced this concept of one rate, right? So no more the difference between card president or card not president or e-com or keyed in rates. We're getting rid of all of that. Um, and we're just saying, you know what? We actually think where this industry is going is, is just pure simplicity. And from a merchant perspective, your perspective, that will take the form of, you know, you get one rate, it's 2.5 plus 15 cents for every type of transaction. Um, and the reason why I talk about simplicity is, of course, it's more than just the rate you'll pay, right? And kind of, to kind of give a, 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 some foundation of why we're doing what we're doing, let's talk a little bit about Uber, right? Um, Uber was the inspiration in my opinion, of everything that is going to come in the future around payment processing. So if you remember your very first Uber ride, um, it had two moments of magic. The first was you could see your car coming on a map. And that was pretty transformative where before you'd call up and you never knew where the taxi was or the car. Um, so that was the first moment of magic. And the second moment of magic was when you got out and it paid for you, right? Using a safe payment method. Um, and, and that was transformational because if you remember not so long ago, whenever you were visiting a major city and, so, and a taxi asked you to pay, you'd have to fumble with some cash or you'd have to hand your credit card over. Um, Uber got rid of all of that. And what they basically said was payment is at its absolute best when you don't have to think about it, when you don't have to pull out a wallet, when you, everything's just kind of done for you in the background. And the more it's done for you, the less friction there is and just the better experience it becomes. Um, and so if, you're, if, you, if you were listening to Keith's history of payments, really what, it's, you know, what it boils down to is it is a, a history of innovation around simplicity, where the industry started off super complex, two, do two dozen different rates, knuckle buster technology. Now it's gone down to one rate, if, you're, if you use norm through Schedulicity, and everything's done through the phone, 
And that's where we really believe the industry is moving to. Um, and so, uh, you know, as we talk about, um, as we talk about rates, the one really interesting thing that we concepted or thought very carefully about when we were designing norm beyond, of course, the experience was historically, if you wanted your consumer to pay by phone, you, um, you had to pay the highest rate as a merchant, right? Believe it or not, when you pay for an Uber, Uber is paying the highest rate available out there because the banks have convinced themselves that it has a higher fraud rate, which isn't true because, you know, maybe on the first time there could be some fraud because you haven't seen that consumer before. But on the second time, you know them, right? You've cut their hair before. They're part of your profile and they're part of your history. And we could, at Schedulicity, we could never understand why somebody was getting charged the highest rate to have somebody pay by their phone. It didn't make any sense. It was what, it's the way this industry is moving. It's how consumers want to pay. They don't want to take out their wallet anymore. They don't want to sit there and tap your, your phone to add a tip. And so what we did was we worked with our payment processor clear and we said, is there a way to charge one rate that blends everything together? At 2.5, that rate is roughly what you would typically pay if somebody handed over their card to you and you dipped or tapped it or swiped it with any other processor. Because what we wanted to do is say, you know what, let's, let's move everyone to paying by phone. That's the way consumers want to go. If any of you have used Venmo to pay your, uh, your children or your children to pay you or anybody, you know how simple this can be. But what we wanted to do is get rid of that rate penalty and we did it, right? And then what we did was we said, okay, it's not just about having them pay with a QR code or a text message. The key here is optimizing the entire system so that it becomes really easy for them to put their card on file to save that payment method. Because guess what? Like after they save the payment method, our engineers for fun recorded how long a payment takes from start to finish. So let's say you're done cutting their hair. They have saved their payment method because we've made it super easy for them. And then you send them a text or they scan a QR code. It takes 9.8 seconds. All they do is literally add a tip, press pay, walk out. And what we've done, and the reason why we're so excited about this is we have created as close to an Uber experience for service providers as we can get. And we've all done it in a way where the consumer doesn't need to download an app. And the hope here is that in a very short period of time, we'll begin to transition the entire schedule city experience from that traditional like, hey, can I have your credit card? I need to dip or swipe it to your customers simply adding a tip, pressing pay on their phone and walking in. And that to us is making payment not feel like anything. That's where this industry is going. Uh, it's not just us. You know, I mean, I, I envision a future where you'll go to the laundromat and you'll hit a button on your phone and you'll walk out with your clothes, right? You're starting to see this type of payment happen in restaurants. This is where the future is headed. And we're just super, we're just super happy to be part of this future. And we hope you'll understand why we're doing it. 
and be a part of it with us. Awesome. I, I'd like to add to that because it feels like that, you know, when we started out, obviously with the online scheduling piece, we wanted to make sure that the experience that a client had with a service professional was very professional and very easy from the very beginning, right? So I'm on a website, you click a button, you're looking at a schedule, you're booking your appointment, all that is seamless, right? This seems to be the continuation of that. It's not only seamless to get in, where you yeah. don't have to bother the service provider, you don't have to keep them from working, then all of a sudden you're moving through, you provide the service, you do the things that you love, you make all that money, then they get up and walk out the door and tip you, right? And it's all super safe and convenient and fast. Yeah. And it's and it's a choice, right? It's the, it's the finish of this experience. And that's right. what I'm excited. Yeah, uh, Michael, you're absolutely right. I mean, this is this is no different than what we did with scheduling, right? It used to be, you'd have to pick up the phone, get out your calendar and write down the day. And it was really painful. Right? Then all of a sudden, online scheduling took off, and then it all happens in the background. It's the same thing with payments. right? Um, it started off with having to put it into the knuckle buster. You'd run their card, then it moved to the dongle, and now it's moving entirely to the phone where it all, it all happens in the background. And that's really what, what we're doing. Is we're moving all of that experience into the background, which, believe it or not, makes it an even better experience. Awesome. Um, probably at this point, unless anyone has anything, we should open it up to Q&A since we're kind of running out of time. Sure. We've got 12 minutes. Uh, Jamie? I did have a question come in for Keith. Michael, I messaged you that one. Um, okay. When initially introduced, were they secured credit or was unsecured credit part of the cards from the start? Yeah, good question. So the in the in the days of you know the charge it plate, they were they were some somewhat secured, right? In that you know you had a bank account, they knew what your average balance was, and you know they allowed you to charge up to a certain amount. So it was somewhat secured because if you defaulted or went over, it was all you know kind of against your your credit your uh, checking account, but. <clears throat> When Amex, as an example, came out on the corporate side, they were they were secured based on the company's assets. And then, you know, as the market grew and we really they banks started focusing on consumers where you started watching the unsecured, right? And you want you watched interest rates go from, you know. I don't even know if they're out there today at 6% on a credit card, but let's say 12%. And then they go up to 18 to 24%, right? Just depending on people's credit score. So uh, in the early days, it was, you know, based on secured by either a bank account or your reputation because of small communities, but, you know, definitely unsecured is what's really caused the growth. Awesome. What do you think, Jamie? I'm not seeing any more. Did we answer everybody's questions before they even came in? <laughs> yeah, I think so. We did have a um, somebody ask about the norm rate. So that one rate, just so everybody knows, is 2.5% plus 15 cents. So, Allison, I saw you um, typing that in the chat. I just wanted to confirm that is our one rate now. 
Yeah. But I think that's all the questions. I personally just want to thank you all, Michael, Keith, and Greg for being here today. Um, and for everybody that has tuned in, we did do our $500 grant giveaway. So thanks for all who joined in the beginning. And I just wanted to announce the winner. Today's winner is Shana Cook with Bang Salon. So congratulations to Shana. Good odds. Good. Yeah. <laughs> All right, unless you guys have any finishing words, I think we're pretty much there. Yeah, I, you know, Michael, as, as you wrap up, you know, as I listen to Greg talk, I, you know, after doing this for 30 years, I would just leave my parting comment is, is that, you know, speed, convenience, um, both for the merchant and the consumer is kind of the name of the game, you know, amplified by choice. And what you guys are doing is, you know, Greg's analogy of the of the Uber ride. You know, when you when you got in a cab, it was a great ride until the last five minutes of the ride. And you started anticipating friction. You started reaching into your wallet because you're going to pay. And the cab driver is sitting there going, oh, where is my credit card reader? And you see, so you went through this great experience of, of riding through New York City. Yeah. But this in a cab. That's right. And then at the end where your cab driver has been kind of telling you about New York City or whatever, and all of a sudden now this friction occurs between you and the cab driver and this great experience became all of a sudden is going to be inundated and probably overshadowed by the next two minutes of you paying. And if it's a got to find my knuckle buster or the car doesn't read, you know, or doesn't have change, it took a great ride to a very marginal ride. And so I think for merchants today and especially your clientele, you know, you spend all this time giving great service, giving great service, and, you know, service is the name of the game for most of these merchants, most of your clients, and and I'm a service kind of a guy, right? I will pay more for a better service. But at the end, if it all of a sudden, it's the last minute, couple minutes of, you know, getting my hair cut, and this friction starts to occur because there's just tension between me and the hairstylist because nothing we're doing is just like, this could be a train wreck, right? And so what you guys are doing is eliminating that allowing a great experience to carry all the way through, you know, the whole experience and, you know, make it easy for me to pay and easy for the merchant to receive their funds. And it is, you know, for, I really think that you guys are going to help businesses better maximize their capital. Right. And so spend time making money, less time dealing with the inequities of payments and, you know, give a better service, upsell your clients, and, you know, keep everybody smiling and, you know, don't deal with the stuff that you're not good at, awesome. right? Which is trying to make payment networks behave. Awesome. Thanks so much. Hey. Can we all just get an amen for not having to look through a book to find credit card numbers? Now, check out clients in a snap with Norm. That's it for our latest episode. We'll be back soon with another one, but until then, be sure to check out Norm. You're going to have a pleasant experience.